in today's economy, there is too much inventory out there. Factories are looking for creative ways to fill capacity. A lot of that capacity is becoming available. And for someone or for a new business that is looking to get a start, now is actually quite a positive time to go out there and make those connections. Hello, and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Esther Sham. Eli Kakshawri has taken the road less traveled into business. He wanted to launch a bike business in Los Angeles, the city of cars. And he did so in 2009 during a recession, a time where many fear taking financial risks. Eli built his company, Retrospec, into a eight-figure business by working with retail distributors while selling directly to consumers, an unconventional move for most bike makers. Eli is here to share his business journey of building Retrospec, advice navigating the economic downturns, and expanding into new product categories. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Schwing. Excited to chat all about your business journey. So urban design and making life more bike-friendly was at the heart of the reason for launching Retrospec. Tell us about these principles and why they were so important to you. Well, so I was a student at USC in the urban planning school. Urban planning is very much like a holistic study of what makes a city smart or sustainable in design. And a big part of that is transportation, you know, walkability and alternative modes of transportation. Essentially, the more a city is built for cars, the less sustainable it is and the less conducive it is to alternative modes of transportation. So, you know, my interest in bikes and how they fit into that ecosystem was just, it was always there. Retrospec is, you know, it was very much an urban bike company. It is the roots. So our problem that we were trying to solve was helping people travel short and medium length distances and with style on, you know, on a device that was both affordable and something that they would love and be really proud of and became a part of them. You bootstrapped the business in the beginning and you launch it during a recession, arguably a time where people feel like they don't want to take a risk. What are some of the benefits actually of launching a business during an economic downturn? I usually get the inverse of this question, Shuang, because folks are usually like, why, why did you start a business when the economy was so tough? And what was really cool about starting at that time was that when other relationships that, that we needed to start the business and to get it off the ground, folks had time for us. And other companies were looking for opportunities to grow and to make up for lost business or slowing down or what have you. And that created an environment that was conducive to starting a business and getting you know, the attention of partners when you're really small. It's kind of also a full circle moment that we're talking about this now. For aspiring founders who are thinking of launching a business now and they're a little bit nervous about the current inflation recession talk, what advice do you have for those individuals? Do it. (laughs) So my experience was starting a business during a time like this, and it has its advantages. You go back a couple of years, and if somebody wanted to start a consumer products company during the supply chain crisis, I would have said, don't do it, because there was just too many roadblocks. There's too many things from getting space on the containers to getting the space, you know, literally like the warehouse space that you needed or 3PL space or 
you know, even getting warehouse capacity, production line capacity, when all the factories around the world were over capacity and there was a consumption boom, that would have been a bad time to start. And today's kind of the opposite, right? So in today's economy, there is too much inventory out there. Factories are looking for creative ways to, to fill capacity. A lot of that like capacity is becoming available. And for someone or for a new business that is looking to get a start now is is actually quite, you know, a positive time to go out there and, and make those connections. Was there ever a thought because of economic downturn, people during that time maybe were looking for alternative ways for transport? So maybe being in the bike business during 2009 was actually the right move? Absolutely. For our business, the problem we were trying to solve was actually a smaller one. It was helping you know, provide an affordable means of transportation for students. As I became a young professional and you know, needed something for commuting, I realized that the bigger opportunity was affordable transportation for everyone. During 2008, 2009, 2010 years, there were periods where oil became very expensive and then, of course, like with paychecks kind of constrained and households constrained, whether gas was more expensive or not, people were looking for ways to save money. And so bicycles fit well into that because it's a one-time cost. So I think that our proposition, our offering was actually very timely for the economic downturn that we were in. So you were very scrappy with your finances, be it branding or manufacturing. Tell us about the early days of really making your finances last. So I started this company with about 8,000 of my own dollars. I never raised outside capital or equity. I still control the whole company. And, you know, we've only ever raised money since then via debt. So early on, we were extremely capital constrained. That meant that I had to wear a lot of different hats. One day I was on the phones selling and maintaining relationships with customers. The next day I was in the van delivering bikes to, you know, XYZ bike shop. What it meant early on is that I had to learn a lot of skills, essentially keep every function of the business working on my own. That meant very long days and weeks. When I was traveling, particularly to my factories, there was nobody here to take care of the business. So a lot of those trips were pretty short. So I'd you know, fly over to our factories for a few days and fly back and have a bunch of orders to ship out. It was a lot of that. But as far as how that capital was spent, almost all of it went to product, to inventory, because that's already a very small amount of inventory to start with. And when we needed things like design freelancers or anything else to like build a website, I remember like our first logo we bought on eBay for $50. And that was the first logo that went on the first bike. I did everything that I could early on to make sure that as much of my initial capital could go towards inventory as possible. What would you say for those who are trying to build a business, they feel like they need additional funding or they're nervous about the current economic environment and they feel like finances would be a challenge? So to your point, in addition to bootstrapping, you also actually didn't raise capital. So what about those later chapters where things do get more complicated and there's more moving pieces within your finances? There was an art to compounding capital, you know, taking that initial investment and making sure that we were making money on it and that we were able to take what I was able to make on the first batch of bikes and buy more on the second batch and continue to double down. 
I wasn't able to take a salary or, you know, or bring on other people because again, any money spent on anything else meant that that our working capital wasn't growing. That's what we had to do in terms of like cash flow management. At that time, it was a really challenging time to raise money. So I took meetings here and there. And even though the business was doing really well, the options that were available to me weren't attractive. It was very important to me to retain equity, even if that meant growing a little bit slower at times and having some out of stock periods. That was a decision that I made, which in hindsight, I'm, I'm happy with that decision. When it came to being able to go out there and getting debt, banks typically require two tax returns and tax returns that show that you've made some money in those periods. So I had to wait until I was in business for a few years before I can obtain a line of credit from a bank. And, you know, once you have that, you have a relationship, you have people that are somewhat invested in the well-being of the business and, and the growth of the business. As we continued to grow, we were able to grow our, our revolving line of credit with the banks as well. And that's really what's helped fund the growth of the business. So really relying on your own growth and also growing at a steady pace that was manageable for your business at that time. Very much so. I'm chatting with Eli Kakshaury of Retrospec. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. And if you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcasts and maybe leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So for yourself personally, you don't have a industrial or product design background specifically, but Retrospec has a very cool vintage feel for the early bikes. How did you initially approach product design in that realm of the business? What I brought to that was a vision. I knew what I wanted the bikes to feel like, and I had ideas of what I wanted it to look like. I've probably developed the skill of articulating that in words better uh, over time than where I started. But I've always been a really big Pinterester. So I've used that as a resource a lot to build boards and, and draw inspiration. So that's, that's been a tool I've really taken advantage of. But as far as our like initial early product development went, I was working with an overseas factor that had a design arm. So a lot of factories, particularly ones that are a little bit larger and have more resources, are, have sort of like a design component to it. So they'll have industrial designers and engineers and, and others on board. And, you know, they helped me design the bike and the functionality that I was looking for. And on a bicycle, a lot of the parts that are on the bike are sort of off the shelf and available. So we were able to try out different parts on the bike and see which brakes felt nice and what gear ratio felt nice for easily pedaling, but also, you know, a, a top speed that was acceptable. And in this development, having to kind of learn on the fly and using whatever tools are online to kind of learn about something that I understood well as a consumer, but maybe not well enough as a designer, had to kind of become an expert in my own right of, of the subject. And then once, you know, you have something you feel confident in, you develop an early sample. And that's when I would say like the fun part of the development started where I got to take this first bike around. If I had it at college, it was to put other people on the bike and get their feedback, just kind of like everyday people, not necessarily people that were avid cyclists, just to get unbiased perspective on, on what the bike felt like. But I also drove around with my early on bikes to the bike shops in the area that carried similar bikes and asked the bike techs and other experts at the bike shops, you know, what suggestions they had and how they felt about the bike and what things I should be thinking of that I hadn't encountered yet and, and what have you. And so it, it's a really like multifaceted development process. 
It sounds like there was a lot of iterating of the product. And also, I'm curious to know, what was that iteration process like as you moved from model to model? And on top of that, your brand is also growing at the same time. So how did you iterate both the product and the brand to grow together? I would say the tougher thing was early on, kind of a stranger walking to a shop and saying, hey, can you look at my bike and give me some feedback on it? But once we were in business, we had relationships. And along the way, especially as a 19-year-old walking to a bike shop and saying, hey, do you want to stock my bikes? You know, you start to have people that really uh, are invested in your passion, invested in your business, invested in your future success that want to help you. And so as it came to expanding to other kinds of bikes or accessories or continuing to iterate and make the products better, just by virtue of having those relationships, you know, we were able to continue to make sure that the existing product was getting better. I think the equivalent to that online is sending out surveys and, you know, polling your social media community, all things that we do now and are able to kind of do with a little bit more scale than we do, than I'm describing walking into a bike shop and having a one-off conversation, using your existing audience to crowdsource information or feedback or, or criteria for products. And actually what's really interesting about that now, fast forwarding you know, over a decade, is that when we pull our social community of everyday people, we often arrive at different conclusions than the feedback that we get from the quote-unquote experts at the bike shops. And not to say that one is more important than the other, but it's actually really cool that we are able to have both. Mm -hmm. The duality of your iterative process. (laughs) Yes. My assumption is you don't have that traditional production-run relationship with a manufacturer per se because you mentioned you were able to have samples and also get feedback and iterate, presumably before a giant commitment to manufacturing or production. Talk to us a little bit about the art of your finances, your inventory, and, and getting a commitment from a distributor or a retailer. In our industry, most bike companies are not necessarily pre-booking a season or ordering bikes way in advance. A lot of bike shops are mom and pop businesses that don't really have like very advanced forecasting models or long-term purchasing plans. So it was important for us in order to solicit orders to have inventory available because we had to have the, the product ready for when there was a need. It's more likely that with larger retailers that you'd be able to maybe solicit an order a year out. You know, if you're starting out and never sold a bike, it's probably unlikely that a larger retailer is going to place an order with you. So, you know, for our business and for the industry that we were in, it was important for us to have um, that inventory in order to start participating in the industry. Because you were working directly with distributors while you also had a direct-to-consumer arm, it's something that might be a little counterintuitive for people in business because they might feel like the two sides are eating into each other or maybe they're not helping both sides of the business. Talk to us about why you wanted to have this approach yourself. When I started the business, there were... I want to say like basically no bike brand selling bikes online. The bike dealer perspective on internet sales is that they are overly competitive or cannibalizing of brick and mortar sales. 
for a long time, I was told over and over and over again by many people that I developed relationships with that, like, you can't sell bikes online if you're going to be in the dealer network. Like, you, it's it's one or the other. Of course, during that time, there were many brands that popped up that were D to C all the way, and and you know their whole model was we cut out the middleman and pass on the savings and and so forth. So even the D to C world was very singular in its distribution. To me, it was very clear early on that there is a customer out there that prefers to walk into a shop and touch and feel and try before they buy, and that we had to be there and have a way for that customer to be able to do so. And there's another customer that really doesn't walk into stores anymore. They order everything online, and we had to have an offering for them too. So while it was at that time controversial and ill-advised, you know, I decided that you know we had to have a D2C strategy and we had to be in brick and mortar and you know for whichever dealers couldn't be aligned with that business like we had to sort of give them the choice of doing business with us or not what was interesting about how that played out is that all of the d2c brands like for example casper mattresses now or you know that was one of the original ones like they're in costco now you know they all ended up in retail and with a brick and mortar strategy similarly even the largest bike companies that were very anti uh, having a direct relationship with consumers, many of them are selling directly online now. So we were really ahead of our time in thinking that offering both and letting the customer decide was the best thing for the customer. I wanted to ask about managing the different touch points, right? You have all the different mom and pop stores, retailers, distributor, your own online store. How do you make sure your branding, the stories, every area that a customer interacts feels cohesive? Our biggest channel is our retrospect.com. So that's a touch point for many of our customers. And we also work with nearly a thousand authorized dealers around the country that, that stock the product. So one of the things that we've employed to ensure consistency across channels is just like design language. So we try to take as much of like our UX, UI design, and even sort of like our iconography on the site and work that into packaging. If you're looking at the packaging of any of our products in a store, it's likely that you'll see a lot of the same kind of like icons and graphic elements as you would see in the digital experience. Visual language is a big part of it, but also as a digitally native brand, as a truly like omni-channel company, not just a company that started off here and then ended up doing that or vice versa, we have also taken on the onus of trying to carry our brick-and-mortar dealers who are very much analog businesses. Not, not all of them have websites or online sales or whatever. We've tried to do whatever we can to sort of share digital assets with them that they can use on social media and do whatever we can to to kind of carry them along the way and, and send traffic their way. And we don't urge our customers to buy from us directly versus going to the store or whatever. We try to make it as much about the customer as possible and what their preferences are. And the dealers are a really big, important part of that. Really just embracing all of the channels and, and making sure that there's a strong throughput between them. In addition to e-bikes, you're not just a bike company anymore. You've expanded into outdoor equipment like paddle boards, long boards, yoga, snow gear. So how was that decision process like expanding into all kinds of different areas? Initially, we got our start in fixed gear bikes. 
As we developed more and more retail relationships in the bike industry, I realized that we had an opportunity to sell different types of bikes into retail and same thing with our direct channels. So the first step for our catalog growth was having more bikes. The throughput on our bike line is that we make everyday bikes. So we're not focused on like, you know, anything that's too performance oriented. And, you know, we've done well in a certain price point. So we've, we've stuck with that over time. After about a few years in the business, I had gotten really into paddleboarding. I learned about inflatable paddleboards, and those were not really a thing yet. But I just fell in love with the idea that, you know, the, the only reason why I didn't have a paddleboard is because they were like 10, 11, 12 feet long. I had nowhere to put one and no way of transporting one. So when I learned about inflatable paddleboards, I knew that I wanted that to be my next big project. I figured out, you know, where we could make those, how we could make those, and went through a similar process of R&D, board shaping, and making paddle boards. And that was an instant success for us. And once we had that platform, that kind of gave us an opening to the other board sports. So before you knew it, we were making longboards and skateboards and all sorts of things like that. As time went on, the business kept growing, but we were very spring, summer, seasonal. So what happened was that every year we'd have this lull in the fall and in the winter where things would get really quiet. So it became a personal mission of mine to sort of like round out our year. So thinking about, you know, ways to do that, you know, given our current offering, snow became kind of an obvious category for us to get into. It's also one that I'm particularly passionate about as an avid skier. So I started testing and making ski goggles and ski helmets. And and we were able to kind of leverage our existing community and retail partners to, uh, to get distribution for those. Those were successful out of the gates. And then of course, with our youth products, like kids bikes and scooters and things like that, those have a really big uh, holiday demand cycle. Q4 became a really meaningful part of the business for us with youth products as well. For our team, we love your tagline, the outside is for everyone. So you're definitely making different sports and activities accessible. So how do you, I guess, balance the pricing, the quality, the branding when approaching this accessibility? Yeah. So one of our other taglines is everything you need and nothing you don't. We find that a lot of outdoor brands and gear brands in general are both kind of like over-engineering and maybe over-emphasizing the importance of some of the things that come with the products. And we really try to take like a less is more approach to the products and make sure that they do the things that they need to do really well and test and test and test and make sure that the folks that are riding them and the the customers that are trying them out are really happy with them. And we are also really thoughtful about where we can cut back and pass on savings to the customer to provide an excellent value. So now you're over a decade in business and I'm sure there's challenges all the time and they change. What is on your mind now and how has your mindset changed over the years running this business? My journey as an entrepreneur is interesting because I started off I started off wearing basically every hat and wore them for a long time. So I know the nuts and bolts of my business really well. Fast forward a decade, as you mentioned, and to a point where we've got, you know, around 70 employees around the world. I'm having to let go of a lot of things that I've done for a really long time. 
I think what makes that possible is hiring people who are smarter than me and, and know how to do these things better than me and leaving them in their hands and just being able to delegate more. And that frees up my time to operate things on a higher level, but it also gives it frees up my time to take on special projects and really, like, I, I don't think I'll ever change. Like I'm always going to be a nuts and bolts CEO, but it, it sometimes it frees up my time to like really get in the nuts and bolts on, on something at a higher level and in more detail and to solve a larger problem than we've ever had. And, you know, that's what's changed over time. Very exciting project at Retrospec is the team working on the new design of an e-bike. Tell us about how you're improving e-bikes and what's coming with this new model. Actually, Shuang, you guys are the first to know, and this is the first time we're announcing that we have our V2 electric bikes launching in the next few weeks here. And so our Koa Rev2 Plus, which will be the first of these V2 bikes to come out, will have integrated batteries and LG or Samsung cells in the batteries with UL chargers. And the new bikes are going to have really robust braking systems and just advanced technology all throughout that will be by far the best value, best bang for your buck under $2,000 e-bikes anywhere out there on the market. I'm really excited to share more with you as those come out. Awesome. Very exciting. We'll keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much for being here, Eli. Thank you, Shuang. That's Eli Kakshawri, founder of Retrospec. And thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer, and I'm Shuang Esther Shan. And we will see you next time. <laughs>